All right. Good morning. It is uh, great to be back with you. Uh, my family and I enjoyed our time away last weekend, but we missed uh, being with you. I want to thank Jared Green and, and Bill Marlette for filling the pulpit in my absence. I heard excellent feedback about both of their sermons. And so we were out of town last weekend for a family wedding, and and, and while we were up in middle Georgia, we had a chance to, to visit with family and to, to reconnect with some friends and had a chance to go to my dad's church and hear my dad preach, which was a rare treat. It's something that we don't get to do very often. You know, Dad and I both work on Sundays. For, you know, some of you believe Sundays are the only time preachers work. Uh, so Dad and I are both tied up on Sundays. We don't get to pull away very often to hear each other preach. So that was, that was a great thing. And of course... You know, last weekend we enjoyed every second of watching the dogs beat up on the Gators. Um, it's always a pleasure to watch Georgia take care of business in Jacksonville. And it may seem a little tasteless and a little tacky, and it may seem like it being a little bit of a bad sport to till, still be bringing this game up eight days later. But listen, I'm 30 years old, and so for almost half my life I lived through the Steve Spurrier era. And I watched the dogs lose year after year after year. I watched Spurrier terrorize Georgia on an annual basis. So when Georgia beats Florida, it is a cause for celebration. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to soak it in until next year. That's just the way that it's going to be. Um, so this morning we're back in the, the Gospel of John. And we're picking up at the start of chapter 6. A few days ago, I was procrastinating on Facebook because generally, when I'm on Facebook, I'm usually avoiding productivity of some kind. And in this case, I was putting off some reading for uh, sermon preparation earlier in the week. And so I'm scrolling down my news feed, and I come across this video clip of, of John Piper preaching at a Together for the Gospel conference a few years ago. And in this short soundbite, he was urging pastors and church leaders to, to read, to study, to pray, to meditate, to teach, and to preach through the Gospels. He was pleading with them to, to savor and to cherish these four biographical counts of the life of Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're provided with a full picture of Jesus. And that's not to say that we don't get a full picture of Jesus in other parts of scripture. You know, we talked about a few weeks ago that every page of scripture whispers his name, right? That, that all, of, all of scripture is God's redemptive history, God's redemptive plan through the work of Jesus Christ. You know, we believe the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, that the word of, of God is, is God-breathed, and that it's profitable for, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. So we're not necessarily saying that the Gospels are more important than any other part of Scripture, but we are saying that the Gospels give us one of the best looks at Jesus. Give us a, a full picture, a clear picture. You know, Piper put it this way. He said, where we meet in fellowship with the living Christ is in the Gospels. Through his words and his deeds with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can see Jesus as a living friend. And if we linger in the Gospels for a lifetime, we'll have an accurate portrait of the Jesus that really was and really is, and we will be ready to meet him when we die. 
And church, this is why we've been working through the Gospel of John. This is why, other than those few weeks in 2020 when we're going to talk about future vision, that we're going to be camped out in John until next summer. It's so that we can see Jesus. And whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time, it's so we can see Jesus. And so we should be praying our labor would deepen our relationships with Christ. We should be praying that the Holy Spirit would illuminate His glory for us in fresh ways. This is why we're studying the Gospel of John. This is why we're spending the better part of a year here. And Lord willing, I will lead us into a new topic next fall. Lord willing, I'll, I'll preach from, from every corner of the Bible at Charity Baptist Church. I'd love to walk through the gospel foundations of Genesis with you. I'd love to dig into the raw emotions of the Psalms with you, to examine the prophets with you, to jump into the practical teaching of Proverbs with you, to chart church history and acts with you, to unravel the rich gospel-centered lessons portrayed in Paul's letters with you, to sort through the future of God's kingdom and revelation with you. There, there's so many places I want to go, so many things I want to preach, so many things I want us to dig into together. I would probably only list Song of Solomon as a hard pass. I don't want to touch Song of Solomon with a 10-foot pole, and if you don't know why, read Song of Solomon this week. That's your homework assignment. It is so much weirder than you remember. And so if we ever get to Song of Solomon, I'll bring in a guest preacher for that one. But, but I'm eager to preach from other places, and we're going to go other places. But for right now, for this season, we are, we're digging our, te- our heels, we're, we're sinking our teeth into the Gospel of John. And so we're picking up the narrative in chapter 6 today. And over the last few weeks, we've witnessed a significant shift in the public perception of Jesus. In chapters 1 through 4, the Jews tolerated Jesus. They greeted him with hesitation. They weren't sold on him, but they were interested in him because they loved the miracles. They didn't love his message, but they loved his miracles. But in chapter 5, their attitude started to change. Their curiosity shifted to opposition. And their shifting opinion of Jesus is the overarching theme of chapters 5 through 7. Their rejection of Jesus was jump-started by a controversy surrounding his healing of a paralyzed man in chapter 5. When the Jews heard about the miracle, they were upset, but they weren't upset about what Jesus did. They were upset about when Jesus did it, because Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. So they believed he had violated Old Testament law. If they were bringing formal charges against Jesus, their case may have sounded something like this. Your Honor, a few hours ago, it was brought to our attention that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, which means he was working on the Sabbath. Therefore, he is in clear violation of Old Testament law. According to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We can labor on the other six days. We cannot labor on the Sabbath. It's cut and dry. It's an open and shut case. Jesus has sinned against God. And so when they started accusing Jesus, he could have easily pointed to their confusion about this particular portion of the law. He could have explained what they were getting wrong about the Sabbath. He could have helped them understand. 
He could have sat them down and said, guys, listen, when, when God commanded you to abstain from work on the seventh day, he wasn't referring to your day job. He wasn't commanding you to avoid all work. He was telling you to take a day off from your job. If you're provided with an opportunity to complete an act of charity or an act of goodwill, do it. You should do it. You know, he could have corrected their misunderstanding. He could have explained to them the difference between a man carrying a mat under his arm and a man selling mats or selling beds or, or delivering beds that were sold the day before. He could have corrected their misunderstanding, but he didn't. Instead, he made a, a startling claim in verse 18, a claim that some commentators have said is the most startling claim in all of Scripture. He said, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, because God is working on the Sabbath, I am working on the Sabbath. He was essentially saying, I am equal to God. And for the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus defended this monumental claim. He explained his relationship with his father. He pointed to his authority that was granted to him by his father over life in judgment. He called witnesses for supporting evidence. And finally, he flipped the script on the Jews. And he pointed to their hypocrisy at the end of chapter 5. Let's look at those, those final words again. This is 45, 46, and 47. Jesus says, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus was poking holes in the fallacy of their works-based religion. See, the Jews were no different than any one of us. They were born into rebellion. They were, they were children of wrath. They were separated from a holy God. They were completely hopeless to reach God on their own. They were completely hopeless to reach God's standard of holiness and return to His good graces, yet they truly believed. If we are good enough, if we are obedient enough, if we are righteous enough, then God will accept us. But they misplaced their hope. They bypassed the grace of Jesus for the law of Moses. Now the mention of Moses at the end of chapter 5 is not an accident. In fact, the concluding verses of chapter 5 provide a nice segue for us into chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, we see the Jews' reverence for Moses on full display. Their reverence for Moses is in the background of the narrative. For first century Jews, Moses was their greatest hero. He was their founding father. If we were looking for a contemporary comparison, we may point to George Washington. Washington's impact on the birth of our nation cannot be understated. And even today, we see his name everywhere across our country. The state is named after him. The nation's capital is named after him. 241 townships and 26 cities are named Washington. Five mountains, four forts, three ports, a handful of parks and bridges bear his name, and around a dozen colleges are his namesake. But a George Washington comparison only paints part, a partial picture because for the Jews, Moses was much more than a founding father. In addition to leading them out of Egypt and governing them as a nation for the first time, he was also the greatest religious leader in 
their history. He was the one who went up on the mountain to meet with God. You know, he was the one who brought down the Ten Commandments, who gave them the law. And so if we're going to provide an equivalent example for their admiration for Moses, we'd have to combine the legacy of George Washington with the legacy of Martin Luther or John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon or Billy Graham. And if we mash together a couple of these legacies, then we might get in the ballpark of understanding their respect and appreciation for Moses. The Jews believe that Moses was the greatest because he brought them the truth from God and he saved them from slavery. But in chapter 6, we'll continue to see that Jesus was greater than Moses because he brought them the truth as God and he came to save them from death. So let's start reading together in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. In the first few verses, we see that Jesus and Moses had similar characteristics. Jesus was a Moses-type figure. Jesus had some similarities to Moses. They walked a similar path. In the opening few verses here, we see four details connecting Jesus to Moses. Four parallels between these two men. First, in verse 2, Jesus was leading a large crowd. Beginning at verse 2, it says a large crowd was following him. Jesus briefly captivated the nation of Israel with his bold claims, his impressive miracles, and, and he built up a, a large following of people. When Moses was chosen by God to lead the Exodus, he helped the entire nation of Israel escape from slavery in Egypt. You know, when we think about Moses, often one of the first things we think about is him at the forefront of this, this large crowd of Israelites going into the desert, for 40 years, wandering around and getting to the doorstep of the promised land. Jesus and Moses both led large crowds. Second, also in verse 2, Jesus was completing signs. Because they were following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. When Matthew covers the same event in his gospel, he says Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. So the crowd saw the signs, they saw the miracles, and they followed Jesus. Well, why did the Israelites follow Moses? For the same reason, they saw the signs. Moses comes to Egypt, he brings the ten plagues. And so through the ten plagues, they understand Moses as a messenger from God, and they start to follow him, because they, they, they watched him bring down severe punishment on their oppressors. So they followed Jesus because he was doing signs, and they followed Moses because he was doing signs. Third, in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain. A little bit of a callback there. After performing a series of signs, Jesus went to the top of the mountain with his disciples to reveal the truth about God. After performing a series of signs, Moses went to the top of the mountain with Joshua to receive the truth from God. And finally, in verse 4, Jesus did these things during the Passover. Verse 4 gives us a little editorial note from John. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And John has already shown this pattern of highlighting the Jewish festivals for us. And usually when he does that, he's helping us establish a timeline. So while 
the note in verse 4 is certainly chronologically significant. It's also theologically significant. Because the Passover is the annual Jewish feast celebrating when God rescued his people from Egypt. A rescue mission that was led by Moses. Before God brought his final plague, death of the firstborn, he commanded Moses to instruct each family to sacrifice a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their house. So here's the connection. During the Exodus, every house covered by the blood of a lamb would be spared from death. And in the future, during the second coming, every person covered by the blood of the lamb will be spared from death. So in verses 1 through 4, we see a few parallels between Jesus and Moses. In the remainder of the passage, we'll see the parallels continue with two incredible miracles. Jesus and Moses didn't only share similar characteristics, they performed similar miracles. Moses fed the Israelites in the desert, and Jesus fed the Israelites on the mountain. Moses walked through water, Jesus walked on water. And though they completed similar feats, Jesus would prove himself to be greater than Moses. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that we may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to eat a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. The men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Quick note there, that's 5,000 men. It's not including women and children. Jesus then took the loaves, and then he had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing will be lost. So they gathered him up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So let's compare miracles. When Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, he was immediately tasked with caring for their physical needs which was not easy. You know, sometimes when we're really familiar with a passage in Scripture, we can gloss over the details. We can stop short of wrestling with the specifics of the story because we think we've, we've gleaned everything from that particular text already. And when I come across the Exodus in, in personal reading or in a group Bible study, I, I, I do this. I, I immediately run back through the details in my head. I think, okay, so... The Exodus, burning, you know, God came to Moses in a burning bush, he sent him to Egypt, Moses burst on the scene, he told the Pharaoh, let my people go, he said no, so he brought a plague down, they did this song and dance ten times, and the Pharaoh finally honored his request, and then he changed his mind, he chased after them with his army, but they escaped. Then Moses and the Israelites wandered through the desert for 40 years, where God provided for their every need, until he finally provided the promised land. You know, what a great story of of God's faithfulness. There's a few lessons here. Let's move on to the next chapter. And while we should certainly work to become familiar with Scripture, familiar with, with plot points, and, and familiar with, with principles and important notes, we can never come, become complacent. We can never develop a sense of arrival. We can never say, 
I have a firm grip on this particular narrative. I have, I know every detail about this passage, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip it. I'm going to move past it. I'm going to go to the next thing. You know, this week as I was considering this familiar story of Moses leading the entire nation of Israel in the desert for 40 years, I started to consider this old story in a new way. Because I really took a little bit of time to marinate on the incredibly difficult task assigned to Moses. He was asked to lead one to two million men, women, and children through the wilderness. One to two million. When I was 12 years old, my extended family took a family vacation to Disney World. We had 16 people on the trip. We made the fatal mistake of trying to stay together the whole time. We didn't divide and conquer. We stayed together. My uncle had this really long, detailed agenda, and we tried to hit something for everyone. We tried to see some shows for the little cousins, and we tried to ride some rides for the older cousins. We tried to do some things the parents want to do. We tried to please everybody, and we kept our whole group of 16 together for the whole time, and we failed miserably. We had the best intentions of of pleasing each person, having this wonderful family vacation, but we failed miserably. We had fun, but everyone was left a little bit unsatisfied. And our week ended with my parents getting into a a fight in a Cracker Barrel parking lot. My parents, who I rarely saw fight in my life, got in a fight in a Cracker Barrel parking lot because we fought Disney and we lost. And understand, we only had 16 people on the trip. We only had 16 people that we were trying to satisfy, trying to please. Now, can you imagine being in charge of one to two million people? Can you imagine caring for the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs of one to two million people? Think about this for a second. I rarely take my three children to Target without getting back with some casualties. Imagine what's on Moses' plate here. And from the outset, one of his great difficulties, one of his main problems was trying to figure out how to feed such a large group. Because they were always on the move. They couldn't plant crops and wait for them to grow. They couldn't leave Egypt with 40 years worth of food in their saddlebags. So how would they eat? God provided. God told Moses he would send bread from heaven each morning. When they woke up, there would be bread on the ground for them to collect for the day. Any extra bread would spoil overnight. Then the next day, God would do the same thing. And God would build this trust with the Israelites. In John 6, Jesus faced a similar circumstance. He had this great crowd in front of them, and he had no way to feed them. And so he asked the disciples what to do. In verse 5, he said, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Notice that Jesus asked a question, but he already knew the answer. You see that in verse 6. He already had a plan. He just wanted to see how Philip would respond. In verse 7, Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
His answer showed the extent of the problem. You know, one denarius was equal to one day of labor, so 200 denarii would have been around eight months labor. So here's the dilemma in Philip's eyes. Even if he spent eight months wages for a day laborer, he would not be able to provide much more than a small portion for each person. And even if he had the money, which he probably didn't, where would he find enough bread on such short notice? And so Philip's predicament provides an important reminder for us. Because sometimes we arrogantly believe that we can handle our life apart from God. That we've got everything figured out. We can solve our own problems. And we almost sometimes walk through life as irreligious people. We walk through life as pagans. We don't pray. We don't talk to God. We don't get into His Word. We just walk through life like we got it figured out on our own. But we will always, always encounter problems that are too big for us to solve. You know, a few years ago, I was at a, a church camp with, with some students, and they had this, this prayer experience set up, and at one of the stations, they had written on this wall uh, just a bunch of phrases, and many of the phrases were from Scripture, and then some of the phrases were, were things that we sometimes say that kind of sound like they're from Scripture, but they're not really from Scripture. And one of the phrases that was in there was that God will never give you more than you can handle. And I had this this young girl who had experienced death of a sibling, and and she had always believed this to be true, that this was in Scripture, that God will never give you more than you can handle. And I had to sit down with her and explain that that's not the case. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle sometimes. But nothing that he gives you isn't something that Christ can't handle. You understand what I'm saying? That God will give you things that you can't handle on your own. He'll give you things that if you don't, if you don't hand them over to God, if you don't give God that burden, they will break you. But he'll never give you anything that Christ can't handle. You know, we can't avoid sickness. We can't sidestep drama. We can't escape being misunderstood and or mistreated. We can't attain approval from all people. We can't elude evil. And we can't bypass death. In this life, in this fallen world, there are some situations where we are powerless. And if we aren't careful, we'll follow Philip's pattern. We'll, we'll walk into these situations seeking human solutions. We'll write a pros and cons list. We'll start trying to figure it out on our own. We'll start trying to fix our problems ourselves. And we'll forget who is standing next to us. Philip is looking for a solution, not realizing that he's standing beside the solution. Jesus asked Philip for a solution to the problem so he could show Philip he was the solution to the problem. Then in verses 8 and 9, another disciple, Andrew, speaks up. Andrew brought Jesus a boy who had a lunch with him. And he said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And if we stop here, we may applaud Andrew's faith. 
we may say, here's a guy who gets it. Here's a guy who gets it. He, he's bringing this young boy. He, he's got a little bit of food. He's going to let Jesus do something with it. But unfortunately, Andrew continued talking. He said, but what are they for so many? But what are they for so many? So his final question undermines his initial comment. He basically said, here's a little bit of food, Jesus, but I don't see how this helps us at all. And we can certainly understand Andrew's doubts. He has five loaves of bread for 5,000 men. I grew up with two brothers. I can tell you with 100% certainty, that's not going to be enough. One loaf of bread per 1,000 men is not a great ratio. A lot of people are going to go home hungry. And in these moments, we have to fight the temptation to belittle the disciples for their doubts. We can easily look at them and say, you know, these guys have watched Jesus turn water into wine. They just saw Jesus heal a man of 38 years of paralysis. Do they really think he can't handle dinner for a few thousand people? But we should always see ourselves in the story. We should always realize we're no better than the disciples because we doubt God too. When we face impossible situations, we're tempted to look for human solutions like Philip. And when those solutions inevitably fail, we despair, we become downtrodden like Andrew. But they would see what we often see, that Jesus has never run into a problem where he didn't have a solution. So he took the boy's small offering. He thanked his father for it. Then he turned it into an all-you-can-eat buffet. John records each person ate their fill. Each person ate as much as they wanted. Now before we move on to the second miracle, we, we need to highlight one thing here. We need to look at the fact that Jesus was able to do so much with so little. That Jesus took this small sack lunch and turned it into a large feast. We need to see that Jesus can do the same thing with whatever we bring to the table. You know, you, you may be having gospel conversations outside of these walls that are unsuccessful, that are frustrating, that don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You may be extending invitations to your friends to come visit on Sunday morning. You know, come, come meet our pastor. Come, come here and preach. Come, come meet the folks in my church. Come sit with me in my Sunday school class. But you don't seem to get anywhere. Understand that Jesus is building on that. You know, your service inside the church may seem inconsequential. You may show up some Sunday mornings with a lesson prepared and, and there's no one in your Sunday school class. There's no kids here that day. You may feel underappreciated. But Jesus values that. Your, your tithe check may seem insignificant. It may seem small. You may feel like I'm only giving a meager offering to the Lord where others are probably giving so much more, but Jesus uses that. And your prayer life may seem irrelevant. It may be dry. You may feel like you're in the desert. Like you, you, you get on your knees by your bed at night and you feel like you're talking to the wall. That no one's listening. No one hears you. 
But Jesus hears that. Whatever you can bring, wherever you're at, whatever stage of life you're in, He can use that. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is purpose for you in Christ. As long as you're breathing, you should be working to see God's kingdom move forth. This little boy didn't bring much to the table. But Jesus did a whole lot with it. And that's an important thing for each of us to see. Let's move on to the second miracle. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at land, which they were going. So second, Jesus miraculously crossed the sea. He miraculously fed 5,000, and he miraculously crossed the sea. So again, let's revisit a miracle from Moses. After leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt, Moses quickly found himself in a terrible predicament. He had the Egyptian army charging after him, and he had the Red Sea in front of him. He was trapped. He was boxed in. He had nowhere to go. But God provided. God told Moses to stretch out his staff towards the sea. When he did, God divided the sea, and the Israelites marched through on dry ground. When the Egyptian army tried to follow, the walls of water collapsed on top of them, drowning them and their horses. In verses 16 and 17, we see the disciples start towards Capernaum without Jesus. They probably weren't sure how Jesus would catch up later, but he sent them and, and they went. And in verse 18, the conditions quickly became rough on the water because a strong wind was blowing. Do you know what God sent to part the Red Sea when the Israelites need to cross? Listen to a couple verses in Exodus 14. When Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Lord drove the wind, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them, so that their right so on their right hand and on their left. So God caused a strong wind to blow, so Moses so Moses could miraculously walk across the dry ground. And God sent a strong wind to blow so Jesus could miraculously walk on the water. So why did Jesus walk on the water? Why didn't he just join them in the boat? Why didn't he meet them on the other side? Why didn't they make plans to catch up in the next day or two? He walked on the water for the same reason that he fed the 5,000, to reveal himself as the greater Moses. When the disciples see Jesus, they were scared because they were witnesses to his deity, because they were encountering something beyond their comprehension, because they were confronted with a being who was far more powerful than they could imagine. In the midst of the storm, they didn't fear the storm. They feared the master of the storm. 
They saw the power of God on display, and they were afraid. But Jesus calmed their anxiety with a few words. He said, it is I. Do not be afraid. With these two miracles, Jesus established himself as one who was like Moses, but greater than Moses. In verse 14, we see some Israelites connected the dots. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Notice they didn't call him a prophet, they called him the prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses wrote about this prophet. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so for generations, the Israelites had waited for this special prophet. They'd waited for this one who would do signs and wonders like Moses. Century after century, they waited. They were looking for the prophet who was like Moses. And then they saw the works of Jesus and they recognized him as the fulfillment of the prophecy. Because the defining legacy of Moses was leading Israel out of slavery. The Jews believed Jesus was going to follow the same pattern. When Jesus was born, Israel was in slavery again in their own land. The Romans had conquered them and made them part of their empire. So when Jesus burst onto the scene, the Jews wanted him to lead them out of slavery. They were chafing under Roman oppression. They wanted him to lead a revolution. They wanted him to overthrow their foreign leaders. They recognized him as the second Moses and they thought, finally, finally, we'll be free. Finally, someone is going to lead us out of here. Someone's going to take back our nation. Let's make Jesus our king. And he can take back our homeland. But Jesus spoiled their plans. In verse 15, he could see the fire in their eyes. He could see the, the passion in their eyes. And he simply withdrew himself from the crowd. Because Jesus may have been similar to Moses. He may have had a similar backstory. He may have executed similar miracles, but he was greater than Moses. Jesus didn't come for victory over Rome. He came for victory over sin and death. They wanted to make him king so that he would take back their country. But he wasn't interested in that. Because before he would wear a crown of gold, he would wear a crown of thorns. Before he would sit on a throne, he would hang on a cross. Because Jesus was greater than Moses. Moses defeated the Pharaoh, but Jesus defeated Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reminders that we're, we're given in this scripture. And 
And Lord, as we as we come into a time of response, I, I just pray that each one of us would consider how we approach Jesus, how we how we view Jesus. Father, the Israelites wanted to make Jesus their king, but they didn't want a leader. They wanted a puppet. They wanted someone to do their bidding. They wanted someone to carry out their plans. Father, I pray that for every person under the sound of my voice, that that wouldn't be how they viewed Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come to to fix our problems. He didn't come to get us out of trouble. He didn't come to make us more comfortable. He came to bring us from death to life. So Father, help us see, help us remember, help us store away in our minds and in our hearts that we can't have the kingdom without the king, that we can't have the liberty without the liberator. We can't have Jesus as Savior without submitting to him as Lord. Lord, if for the folks in, the, in this room that understand that to be true, Lord, give them Give them peace. Um, Give them comfort in those truths. And for those in this room who maybe have an improper view of Jesus, maybe stay around Jesus because they hope that it can bring them prosperity or health or whatever. Help them see that that's not Jesus' primary concern. Help them see that that he didn't come so they would be more comfortable or more content. He came so that they might have life through him. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.